session five in our study of Colossians. We're beginning in chapter two today, and as you remember from last time, we talked about how in chapter one, Paul was laying the foundation for the rest of the letter. In chapter one, Paul was letting them know that you've got a lot going for you, Colossians. You're strong in your faith in Jesus, and you're strong in your love for others. And in chapter two, I believe he's saying, but be careful. Because although you're strong in faith and your love for each other, if you allow false teaching in your midst, it will hinder your faith and cause division among you, which is not good for you as individuals or for your testimony to the world. You see, and you and I must also be mindful. We must also be mindful of the fact that false teachings can just as easily filter into our own consciousness. So we're going to begin reading in chapter 2. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. And it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So in verse 1, he tells us, that Paul has written this letter to both the Colossian church and to the church in Laodicea, which is a town approximately 11 miles from Colossae. So the fact that Paul is writing this letter to both churches indicates that the heresy that is filtering into the Colossian church has also spread to the the church at Laodicea. And so in verse 1, it tells them, uh, Paul tells them that he wants them to know about his struggles. He wants them to know about his struggles on their behalf. And so this is not the first time that Paul mentions his struggles. He also mentions them in verse 124 and in 129. So why does he want them to know about it? Well, individuals don't often struggle for people they don't care about. You see, the fact that Paul is willing to struggle for them, it shows the depth of Paul's compassion for them. I mean, personally, to know that someone is willing to struggle for me on my behalf It's an encouragement to me, and it gives me a sense of appreciation. And it shows just how valuable the gospel message of salvation through Christ really is. I mean, if Paul is willing to go to such great lengths to make Jesus known, then Jesus must be pretty important. He wouldn't be so willing to suffer for something that doesn't matter. And so verse 2 tells us that Paul's hope is that they will be encouraged and knit together in love, or united together in love. Now remember from verse 124, we learn that the church is Christ's body. 
And do parts of a body work well together if they're isolated from each other? Of course not. A healthy body is one in which all the parts work in harmony with one another. So how do we as Christians create harmony? Well, by being knit together in love. Now notice, God's word is not saying that we should be knit together by a common cause or that we should be knit together because of a similar interest. The bond between Christians is much deeper than that. You've heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water. Well, Christians are bound by blood. They're bound by the blood of Jesus. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we become a part of a family, not a group, not an organization, but a family. And we acquire brothers and sisters from all walks of life, from all over the world. So we can be united in love because of our mutual love for the Savior. And why is this important? Well, it tells us later in the verse so we can have complete understanding and knowledge of Christ. You see, true understanding of Christ and the ways of God comes when a heart is yielded to him and is seeking unity among their brothers and sisters in Christ. Matthew 18, 20 tells us that where three or more are gathered in my name, that I am there in the midst of them. You see, knowing Christ brings unity and knowing Christ brings wisdom and it brings knowledge. And again, this is refuting what the false teachers were saying. Because the false teachers at that time were saying that it was knowledge. It was special knowledge, and that is what brings about salvation. That something had to be added to Jesus. That, that Jesus alone could not bring about salvation. That one had to have special knowledge in addition to Jesus. And again, that's not so. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. And it must come first. Then comes knowledge and wisdom. And again, that's not so unlike today. I mean, you may know someone who said, I'm really not ready to be saved yet because I need to know more or I need to get my life right. I need to add these good works first. Then I'll be able to be saved by Jesus. No, that's not the way it works. A relationship with Jesus comes first. Then comes the motivation to grow and to learn and to be like him. It all stems from that initial relationship. And so verse 3 tells us that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what is the difference? I mean, what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Well, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says that knowledge is the apprehension of truth and wisdom is its application. Knowledge is prudent judgment and wisdom is prudent action. You see, God doesn't just want us to have a bunch of knowledge about him. He doesn't want us to just know a lot about him just for the sake of having knowledge. He wants us to use what we've learned in order to benefit others. Because godly wisdom and knowledge, it is a treasure. It is a treasure that is hidden in Christ. So why? Why is it considered a treasure? Well, because of its value, because of what it can do for us and for others. It can bring peace, guidance, fulfillment, and meaning. And it's all found in Christ. So only through a relationship with him can one attain these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's important. It's important because Paul tells us in verse 4, so that we won't be deluded. 
we won't be deceived with plausible arguments. The NIV says, so that we will not be deceived with arguments that sound reasonable. So can a Christian be deceived? Yes. Ephesians 5, 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Romans 16, 17 through 18 says, How I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles, contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. So false teaching will often sound correct and be very persuasive. You see, the enemy, the devil, has been using plausible arguments to sway people's minds and hearts since the beginning of time. Remember back in Genesis 3, when he slithers up to Eve in the garden? Remember what he says? Did God really say not to eat from any tree? And Eve responds, we can eat from the trees, just not from that one, or even touch it, or we'll die. You see, right there, Satan plants the seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say? And Eve misrepresents God's word. God never said that they couldn't touch it. But Satan goes on to say, you won't die because God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And here's the kicker. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, this is a plausible argument because it's partially true. Adam and Eve do become aware of evil for the first time. And look at the repercussions. You and I are still experiencing the effects of that decision today. You see, that's the damage of false prophecies and belief systems. There's just enough truth to entice people to believe without exposing the devastating nature of what is at its core. So we must not fall for it. And the only way not to fall for it is to be grounded in God's word and in godly wisdom. Paul goes on to tell us in verse 5 that he rejoices. He rejoices to see the Colossians' order and their firm faith. Now this idea um, of order and firm faith is actually from the military. It's actually describing like a military, a united front against an enemy. And you see, that's the benefit of being knit together or united in love. We have a support system of fellow Christians who can encourage us and pray for us against the attack of false teaching. As Christians, we need each other. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So verse 6 tells us that we need to walk in him. Just as we received Christ Jesus, we also need to walk in him. Now, how do we do that? Well, how did we receive him? We received Jesus by faith. And that's exactly how we live for him, by faith. Just as our new life began with Jesus, it must continue with Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, our lives in Christ do not end with salvation. They begin with salvation. A life with Christ is ongoing. And so if you're a person who says, 
yeah, I'm saved, and I know I'm going to heaven when I die, and that's really all I need, then you're missing out. You're missing out on such great and fulfilling treasures, the treasures of knowing Christ intimately, and the joy and the peace of walking with him every day. So Paul continues his depiction of what a life looks like, um, a life that's that's living for Christ, and, and what that looks like when he says in verse 7, that we must also be rooted and built up in him. You see, the basis of our faith is Jesus Christ. And when we received Jesus as Lord, we became rooted in him. And as we continue to live for him, we are being built up so that we can avoid what it says in Ephesians 4.14, being blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. You see, Paul says, just as they were taught, they need to remember what they've been taught. Well, what is it they've been taught? Well, remember from verse 1-7, we know that they were taught by Epaphras, and we know Epaphras was taught by Paul. So their teaching is from God's word. And so we must remember what we've been taught from God's word. I mean, to be able to identify false teaching, we must be grounded, grounded in God's word, because falsehood can seep in undetected. Therefore, we must be careful. We must be careful about what we see, about what we hear, about what we read. Does it line up with scripture? Because if what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what we're reading doesn't line up with scripture, we must not make it a part of our belief system. So to sum up, how do we avoid being deceived? Well, we should be rooted in him. We should be saved. We should be built up in him, continuing to grow in our faith. We need to unite ourselves with other Christians. And according to verse 7, we also need to abound in thankfulness. Now, abounding in thankfulness, this is the third time that Paul mentions thankfulness in this letter. So what part does thankfulness play in all of this? Well, have you ever thought of thankfulness as a defense mechanism? Have you ever thought of thankfulness as a choice, a choice of attitude, rather than just an emotion prompted by something someone has done for you? Adopting an attitude of thankfulness focuses our attention, our minds and hearts on God and what he has done. And in effect, it crowds out all the other deceitful voices that tell us that God isn't enough, that there must be more to it. Now, personally, I can attest to the success of this strategy because I've actually used it in my own life. When thoughts begin to fill my head that I'm not enough, that God doesn't want to listen to me anymore, or that he really doesn't have a plan for my life, I choose to thank him. Now, I have to be honest, in that moment, I don't feel thankful, but I do it anyway. I thank him for saving me, for preparing a place for me in heaven. I thank him that I have eyes to see the sun shining and ears to hear the birds singing. And after a while, my mind becomes so crowded with the thoughts of all that God has done for me and for those I care about, that there's no room anymore for thoughts of doubt and fear. And before I know it, my emotions catch up to my mind, and I actually begin to feel better. So having an attitude of thankfulness protects us. It helps to protect us from being taken captive. 
from being taken captive by what it says in verse 8, from philosophy and empty deceit. You see, not only can we be deluded, but we can also be taken captive by vain philosophies and empty deceit and human traditions and elements of the world. You see, in the first century, people were allowing false wisdom, human knowledge, angels, heavenly bodies, all of these things they were allowing to become objects of their worship. And again, that's not so unlike today. Because even today, false prophecies are plausible. And not only are they plausible, but they are prolific. In our culture, we are bombarded with different philosophies and different belief systems on how to live your best life. The internet is awash with different belief systems. I mean, a simple search on how to live a fulfilling life rendered over 200 different methods. 200. Alternatives to following Christ are easily accessible, but we must not become captivated by them. We must follow the instructions given to us in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Now, it's important, I think, to note at this point that Paul is not saying that all philosophy, that all knowledge is bad, because he just got through telling us that philosophy, um, excuse me, that wisdom and knowledge based on Christ is actually something that we should aspire to. And I think sometimes people think that Christianity and intellect are at odds with one another. I think sometimes people may think that Christians are unintelligent or uninformed and that their lives are purely based on blind faith. Well, as Christians, we do live by faith, but we also know that God and Jesus created the world and everything in it. And we also know that God wants us to understand him. And so it stands to reason that if he wants us to know about him and understand him, that he also wants us to be knowledgeable about the world that he's created. I mean, Romans 1 tells us he reveals himself through creation. So God wants us to be knowledgeable about him and the world in which we live. And so verse 9 tells us clearly that, that Jesus, in Jesus, is the whole fullness of the deity. And so this word fullness from the Greek is pleroma. It means the sum total of all that God is, all of his being, all of his attributes can be found in Jesus. And again, Jesus wants us to know this. He wants us to be knowledgeable and wise about these things. And again, by focusing on this fullness that can be found in Jesus, Paul is refuting Gnosticism which is a false belief system that taught that only through the fullness, only through the fullness of knowledge could one truly attain salvation and have access to God. That it was this knowledge, this fullness that was the source by which a person comes to God. And again, Paul is saying that is just not the case. The only way to God is through Jesus. He is the source by which people come to God, not through some special fullness or secret wisdom. And just as Jesus is filled with God, verse 10 tells us that we as Christians are filled with Jesus. And herein lies the key, the key to living a full life, because that really is the goal for human beings, right? People are searching for fulfillment. 
and they search for it in all different places. People search for fulfillment from family, from friends. They look for fulfillment in their work, from money or from fame. But it's all empty without Jesus. Ecclesiastes 1 verses 16 through 18 says, I said to myself, See, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind was thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Do you see what gaining knowledge and wisdom without Christ renders? Without Christ, all knowledge in the world is still meaningless. French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre is quoted as saying, Life is an empty bubble on the sea of nothingness. How sad. That's not the way it's supposed to be. God wants our lives to be full. And he knows the best way to go about it. By being rooted, built up, and walking in Jesus. Because Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. So there's no new philosophy, no new belief system that has authority over Jesus. He is the final authority over all things. And he is the one that we should be seeking. So, as we close our time together today, our challenge for the week is this. Answer the question, what captivates you? What captivates our time, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions? Does it crowd out Jesus? Are we making Jesus a priority in our lives? So thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait to meet with you again next time. God bless you.